welcome to the Shrink Think Podcast. I'm Aaron. And I'm Nathan. And we're both licensed professional counselors in Oregon here to open up our lives and minds with you. We'll share some of our experience as counselors, business owners, and most important of all, as everyday people. Excited to continue this series on the fear triangle that Nathan and I have developed over time. In the last show, we kind of gave you an overview of what this fear triangle is, which was based on Karpman's dreaded drama triangle. And today we're going to expand on one of the specific points on the triangle, which is one of the roles that each end of the triangle can hold. You've got the persecutor, the rescuer, the victim. Today, we're going to be talking about the persecutor role, and of course, we'll have to mention or blend some of these other roles that people take as well. Just a little bit, we'll touch on kind of how the persecutor interacts with those other roles and how they see them and relate to them. But I want to get started today by having Nathan introduce what he talks about with his clients about the persecutor role, and then we'll unpack it more over the course of this show. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. So... One of the things, just as a tiny background, um, I had mentioned in in our previous show about the development of the fear triangle, and and one of the things that I didn't mention was that I was realizing as you're just introducing, is that when that person came to me and said, hey, you really should call this something different, I went actually to a thesaurus and I started trying to look for different words than what Karpman had used for the persecutor, rescuer, and victim, and uh, quickly found out that he had actually used all of them, like all of the different words in the thesaurus. So I was like, okay, that's not going to work. So I bring that up because a lot of times as I'm teaching this, people will actually change the uh, words around. And I want to say that that's totally fine. So sometimes people will, will start feeding me back. They'll be like, okay, so the prosecutor will say like, you know, or the perpetrator. Anyway, that's totally fine. It just was an interesting little side note. But what I go over with with my clients, because um, I really don't think I know another way to teach this, actually, from I'm just too much in a habit. There's a metaphor for the persecutor, all right? So picture, if you will, in your mind now, for just for a second, that there's this hermit, and he's out in the middle of nowhere, and he's got this little hermit shack. There's a forest. He has landmines around that shack. And he has barbed wire around the landmines, and there's no entryway in. And he stands out on his porch, looking out at the world. It's a sunny day in the forest. And um, at this point, one of the rules of the triangle is that, if you recall, when you're on the triangle, all that you see is people on the triangle. But the triangle is, is is more of a dynamic. It's more of something that happens and occurs when you enter fear. So as the hermit standing out on the porch, he's not scared, so he's not on the triangle. So there's this rescuer that's walking through the forest, and we're not going to focus on the rescuer, but just to see the dynamic take place. So the rescuer is walking through the forest, just happy and go lucky, and sees this guy, we'll call him Bob, standing out on his porch. And he looks over and sees Bob kind of looks a little disheveled, and he notices that there's, as he gets closer, there's like barbed wire. And the rescuer is like, oh, man, maybe this guy needs help. At that point, this rescuer is entertaining being a rescuer. And he's got Bob in the position of being a victim. But Bob's not afraid, so he's 
not a victim right now. And so the rescuer walks closer and as he gets to the barbed wire, he's like, wow, this is legit. This guy's got barbed wire. Um, but, but good old rescuers always have a way in. So luckily he brought his multi-tool and he cut a thing of barbed wire to which Bob just sits there and is looking at him. Bob still hasn't said anything, but if somebody cut your barbed wire, you probably would say something. So apparently Bob may have just agreed to be the victim at that point. So the rescuer cuts through the wire, gets all the way through it, and he's looking at Bob, and he's watching his eyes, and he's, he starts to step into the area of all where Bob had put landmines. The rescuer, of course, doesn't know that, but is intuitive enough to know if this dude has barbed wire, he has some freaking booby traps. So he starts moving closer to talk to Bob, and very carefully, here's the thing, though. Even as Bob's moving his eyes, like, and the rescuer's changing where he puts his foot, Bob doesn't remember where all the booby traps are because some of them have been there for a long time. And sure enough, rescuer gets too close and boom, you know, he is, uh, he's gone. And uh, that explosion is kind of the way that I'm trying to explain the point at which the rescuer gets too close and the persecutor moves from that place of wanting to accept help and vulnerability into a place of like, get away from me. And that explosion is kind of symbolic of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think I've heard something like this from you maybe early on when we talked about this fear triangle, because that's always a picture that I have in my head. It's slightly different, uh, definitely out in the woods. And the persecutor is, it's interesting. I, I think about the persecutor in two ways. In one way, I sort of think about him like, the guy that's got the shotgun on his lap, sitting on his porch to relax. I mean, he's not hes not afraid. He just sort of has that. It's just what he does. He's got this protection thing going on, and it's just part of what he does. On the other hand, I think about a persecutor as someone who actually lives in kind of a nice house. Like, he sort of has things together, has his life together, wants people to sort of leave him alone. Like, it's just a nondescript I mean, it's nice, but it's a nondescript house. Um, so anyway, we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go. But the thing that's interesting to me, and we talked about this in the last episode, just in the overview, I tend to find myself in this persecutor role more often. Of course, I, in some ways, I feel bad saying that because I'm like, that's the one that sounds bad. You know, I'm the bad guy and the rescuer is a good guy, but that's not really how it goes because every point on this triangle is somebody who's afraid and somebody who is a victim or has been victimized in some way and they're afraid of that. So as I as I embody like this persecutor role and I can kind of describe what it looks and looks like and feels like from the inside and, and even see outside of it because I've got enough awareness about it. It's interesting that when you describe this persecutor who's, who is just sitting on his porch sees a guy he's not afraid he trusts in his systems like he knows that he's got some defenses somewhere and the other thing that's interesting to me is the persecutor i think wants to meet the rescuer he wants to meet with people he wants to have people come by and talk with them so it's not like he necessarily wants to be on his own he just doesn't trust anybody else so he's open, but then, like you said in the thing, as soon as somebody gets close, boom, like something happens. That idea, as you're bringing it up, there is an openness. Um, the, the persecutor wants to totally control the interaction from up front. So they've had experiences in their life in which they've kind of become afraid, different relational experiences. 
And so what they've done is, is they put too many boundaries up. If you picture that hermit, I mean, like that is way overkill, like uh, having all those things. And there's also no gate in the extreme scenarios. So they're trying to control like the ports of entry and they don't really want you in there. <laughs> well, they want you in there, but, but they want you in there on their terms. And humanity doesn't work that way. Yeah, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about the like that sort of control thing. It's like on my terms, like we can get close, but I, as a persecutor, I might find myself tending to be somebody who's more in the lead in the relationship, or I'm sort of controlling the vulnerability. I'm determining when you take steps or how you take steps, and and not just you know running out to meet you and inviting you in and just sort of letting it be. Of course, that's how I imagine I'm being, but that's not what's happening. Yeah, so the um, persecutor struggles with two wounds that are primary for them. Um, and I believe, again, as I mentioned, I believe in the first podcast regarding the fear triangle that everybody's experienced all four wounds. But I think that personality drives the boat a little bit on what wounds end up settling, where the person ends up owning it a bit more. And I think for the persecutor, those folks have a tendency to be more linear, uh, a bit more organized, a bit more type A. And for them, it's like I picture, you know, four years old, they're with their mom out in like the clothing store, right? And at least, you know, that was prior to Amazon, I guess. Because mom's out shopping, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Something right. like that. Yeah, and there's no pandemic. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, but, and the four-year-old can't see over the clothing racks. And so the mom's on the other side and moves, the four-year-old walks around, and mom is not exactly where she was before. And, you know, this, this up-and-coming linear thinker four-year-old is like, well, wait a minute, she was there, and now she's gone. She left me. She abandoned me. Or the, the idea of she betrayed me, she was supposed to be there, and now she's not. And, and then the bigger core piece on the persecutor side is questioning of this belonging maybe she like it's like she doesn't think i belong to her i should be more important to her than this and so um anyway that's kind of the building blocks that that start that you could say maybe on the experience level one of the important things that has we unpack this fear triangle with all the different points as well is you talked about personality some of that is how each person or each each role, like a persecutor, rescuer, victim, responds to the fear. So a persecutor, for example, might experience that abandonment or that betrayal. And then at that moment, something goes off in them. You know, the way that our feelings and our thoughts or our beliefs and our bodies work together is that when we have feelings, we can have these unconscious thoughts about what's going on, you know, whether it's in our body or what's going on outside of us. But inevitably, those two things go together. So we have this emotional experience. We have this uh, physical sensation that comes over us of like panic and fear. And in that moment, a persecutor might say to himself or herself, I'm never going to let that happen again. Like, I can't trust anyone, whether it's a betrayal or whether it's an abandonment. They say, wow, I can't trust mom. I can only trust myself. Now, as a four-year-old, obviously, that's not the kind of conscious thought that somebody's going to have. But uh, what we're describing is if the experience was so big and so bad, then that is the kind of thing that somebody might do. But more likely, if it's an ongoing sort of a thing like, you know, that, that thing happens over and over and over, 
at some point, if whether there is a lot of abandonment or a lot of perceived betrayal over and over again, at some point, it's the accumulation of that stuff that the persecutor is going to say to themselves, all right, I've kind of had enough. It's too much. I've been hurt too much. I can't trust anybody else. I can only trust myself. And at that point, they're going to turn toward themselves and start only looking to themselves for safety and protection. And to use your your imagery, that's when I think they start building that house in the woods. <laughs> right, right. So uh, some, some of you folks out there may have experienced this, where you've met, you've met someone, they're important to you, and they, they have everything together. Everything's totally together. You trust them, and they, they seem to just really be able to move through life well. And so you decide to get married. And all of a sudden, uh, after the marriage ceremony, later, you know, literally within a two or three days, it's like this person completely changes. All of a sudden, they're controlling. They won't let you go anywhere. They're concerned about every person you're talking to. And that's kind of, an, to be honest, I'm a bit more of an extreme example. But I know it's happened to folks out there. And that would be kind of an example of where, as in the metaphor before, when the person gets, okay, now you're close. Now you're inside. Now you can really hurt me. I'm going to extend my boundaries all the way around you. You have to perform this way um, in order for, for me to be safe. So here's the thing, Nate. Um, you're absolutely right about that. The thing, though, from a persecutor standpoint is that we don't see it that way. We don't see like, oh, man, you can really hurt me. We see it, you know, initially not from a place of self-awareness of realizing that we've got this primary wounding, that we're afraid of abandonment or betrayal. We need belonging and that there's this risk. We've been walking along thinking that we're fine and we can trust ourselves and we know how to navigate the world. And so there's really nothing to be afraid of. So we look at it more from an externalized view of like, when you come close to me, oh, you did something. You could hurt me because you were not consistent or you're changing your mind or I had things a certain way and then you disrupted that or you wanted something from me that I was like, why should I give you that? Like you're wanting more than what I'm putting in front of you. You know, like I've decided that you can have this in front of me and you're like, well, what about something more? What about, you know, some vulnerability behind that? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I've given you like so much here. That should be okay. That's, I think, how a persecutor might perceive that sort of closeness and a little bit of how they interact with another person close to them, more of as in a, a blaming, accusing, attacking, externalizing sort of a way. And you can kind of get hints if you listen closely. You can hear that behind that, it's somebody that who has been victimized or who is afraid, who has been hurt, and they're just absolutely terrified of getting hurt again. Would you say, Aaron, that from that perspective, do you actually get to the place where, you know, like, hey, I've given you these things, like, I'm not, like, why isn't that good enough? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think when, when you get close to somebody, like you described, that you've sort of set up this controlled environment of the way that this is what vulnerability is, I've decided what to share with you. But I think I'm being vulnerable, and maybe in some ways I am being vulnerable. I'm sharing something with you, but I've decided what to share, how much to share, and I've put a limit on that. I'm not just open and letting you ask questions of me. So I think from that standpoint, when you, you know, as the other person in this relationship, when you ask questions of me or want more openness from me, 
frankly, I think that just kind of becomes scary. I mean, it's the idea is appealing and like intellectually, I can know that that might be a good thing, but then how to do that is like, wait a minute. So, so I need to have a controlled environment and let you in and then tell you all the questions that you can ask me and then answer them. And you're like, no, (laughs) that's way too controlled. Right. So is there a sense for you then of when the question gets asked or when, uh, when you're, when somebody's coming closer to you, are you kind of trying to push back? I mean, I guess I'm wondering how in that way, for lack of a better way to say it, how mindful are you in the moment? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in a lot of ways at first, so I'm, I'm thinking back to uh, myself and then other clients that are in this role. I don't think there is a lot of awareness. I think we can be mindful, but we're really kind of only able to be mindful of what is known to us. And we've never really explored the vulnerability of that hurt because we said, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to open that up to anybody again. So there are parts of ourselves really kind of like the deepest, most vulnerable parts of ourselves that we have hidden away in the basement and we've, we've protected and locked up. So nobody has access to that. Not even me, not even the self. So in a lot of ways, I think persecutors think that they're being vulnerable. They don't, they have no idea that there's more down there until it's pointed out to them. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's part of the benefit of actually understanding the fear triangle, because we're essentially telling you, you can make some assumptions, right? So if you are feeling vulnerable and you identify more towards the persecutor side, we're, we're teaching you right now, you can make the assumption that you're probably having a feeling of abandonment or betrayal. Um, that's happening. And so at that point, if you trust that, you can start to try to figure out, now, why would I feel that way? Uh, What I'll often ask uh, people is to go back in your minds to a time when you would say, like after you kind of understand this whole betrayal and abandonment thing, I'll say, um, go back in there to a time when you really experienced what you would say, Nate, this is it, dude. This is the perfect example of abandonment. This is like, like when I'm trying to tell you about this. So this is the situation. So my mom walks in or my dad walks in or whatever. Um, cause that's going to be a huge part of the building blocks for how this stuff has happened. Yeah. And like I said before, in that moment, there's like a thought or a belief that forms that ultimately kind of becomes like your, your defining thought or belief in your relationships after that. You know, I said something earlier about, Uh, Something along the lines of, I'm not going to trust anyone. I can only trust myself. I'm never going to let that happen to me again. Something like that. So you said a minute ago that if you feel the sense of like, you know, abandonment or betrayal, that's one way of looking for this stuff in yourself. Like if you're not sure where you're at in the triangle, you can look for, okay, do I resonate with those feelings of abandonment or betrayal? Have I had any experiences like that? Some people don't have those. They can't readily recognize those experiences, or maybe they just haven't put words to it. So sometimes I'll talk with them about, okay, well, you know, in, in your relationships, have you said things to yourself in your head repeatedly over and over again, or maybe even sometimes out loud? Have you said the words, it seems like nothing I do is good enough, or fine, then I'm, I'm not doing that again. Like it's going to be all on you or you keep doing this. And, you know, I can only trust myself. I'm all, I'm going to do my way from now on kind of this hermity sort of a, of a response. Those are the kinds of thoughts and the kinds of statements that a persecutor would say over and over again. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think 
as you start to entertain this and we're and you, I think you know you're in your heads right now as you're listening to us and trying to figure out kind of where you fit and there's some some of you out there that it doesn't you're like well I mean I'm not really the persecutor person but um, the reality is is what how this is helpful for you is that if you happen to be in relation especially close relationship to somebody who um, is more wounded with abandonment and betrayal, you can also make some assumptions. And those assumptions are like how that, that right now they're interpreting you is that you have left them. Like you, you have somehow are in the process of or have already said something that you shouldn't say, said something that, that is contrary to what they think that you said before. Um, somehow something has changed. Your special person is kind of putting some boundaries up and pushing back or just saying like, wait, 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 wait. You you already said, you know, or that kind of thing. Actually, I have an, an example of this. Sometimes it can even be the other person just has their own feelings. They Like they're going through something that really is not related. Like I'm, I feel like I'm kind of being vulnerable or I feel like I need you for something and you're just not available or you're going through something and you have like your own emotions going on, but maybe you're not telling me about it. And so a persecutor is really, really keen on watching your face and reading this, the other person and, and like, uh Oh wait, how come you're not, what do you, what do you, what are you saying? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? And they become aware of that abandonment feeling, even if the other person is right there with them. But emotionally, you might not be. And that persecutor might start to feel somewhat panicky and abandony, um, or like you're betraying me by not being present for me emotionally. Oh, yeah, that's helpful. It's interesting because coming from the rescuer side, I would say, the, you know, which we're not doing right now, but rescuers really get in their own head. Uh, big time. And so it's interesting when you're saying that, like, oh, I wouldn't have guessed that you were in your head as much as what you're, you know, like keen observer, like, oh, what's happening next? Right. Because it's a scanning of the environment, right? It's trying to read you and read the other person to see, are you still there for me? Uh, are you responding to me? Or do I need to do something to protect myself because it's not safe anymore? Right. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I think one of the responses that uh, persecutors have it just in very high level general, like 30,000 foot levels, what I like to say, is kind of an overt response. A persecutor, that's kind of what distinguishes them from uh, the other points of the triangle is this idea that, OK, this is what's going to happen now. They kind of insert themselves into what's going on or and, and maybe not even directly to the other person, but like they just remove themselves. If you think about it, you can kind of overtly control the wounding of betrayal or abandonment because you can just say, you're not going to leave me. Um, and if you lie to me, I'm gone. I mean, or I'm going to control things so that I leave you and I'm separating myself from you. It's kind of like that. Well, if I break up with you first, then I can say, well, no, she didn't break up with me. I broke up with her sort of thing. And you can tell yourself you're safer because that's how you went, went about it. Right, right. So overall, you know, I think as far as the persecutor focus goes, I feel like we've kind of exposed that pretty well. I do have something I guess I'd like to um, to highlight a little bit because we'll talk about this more with the other pieces as well. Just in thinking about, okay, so if, if some of this is resonating with you and you're saying, okay, yeah, I think that that does fit me. Like, what do I do about that? Um, like, how do I begin to work myself off of the triangle? One of the things that, that you taught me a long time ago about the persecutor is that they tend to be very intellectual or you can reason with them. And I've seen that to be true for persecutors because they're smart enough 
to think things through because they have to be really careful about things. So um, a lot of times with other persecutors in my office, if I'm describing these things and they're like, okay, yeah, I think that does resonate. They're quickly wanting to move to what do I do about it? And giving them information of how to proceed makes them feel safer. So it's really interesting because feeling safer and knowing how to be okay emotionally in the uncertainty or in the vulnerability is really, really difficult for persecutors. But if they know what's happening, why it's happening, how it's going to happen, what to do about it, they can feel more safely moving forward into vulnerability. It's almost like you have to describe, okay, here's how you're going to be vulnerable. You're going to say this, you're going to feel this, and then here's what you're going to do about it. And the other person might say this, but it's okay. As long as they have like this mental outline of how to work through things, then they can be okay. But again, that's really highlighting just a lack of experience with that vulnerability because you you have to sort of describe a mental framework about how to go about it yeah that's yeah um that's really helpful too aaron so one of the things i will tell people is it's a really about in that back to the hermit in the beginning it's about building a gate building an intentional path where people oh yeah you're going to let them in this way you know this is the direction that they come from so there's this idea like i'll say really, you probably have too many boundaries, you know, so you're going to have to lessen that and then be a bit more compassionate. So you're saying to a persecutor, so I need to get walked over. I just need to open up my boundaries and let people walk over me. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Right. That's, and that is a, and honestly, if you have that response right now with Aaron, (laughs) that is so indicative of a persecutor because rescuers would never respond like that. Um, (laughs) That's <laughs> funny. It's funny because I was actually going to say that and Aaron goes, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's like the ding, ding, ding. Yeah, right. You've like hit a nerve here, which is like, like I don't want to get hurt and my boundaries are there to protect me. That's why that rings true for you. Right. The cool thing, you know, when I was first on this trail that we've been talking about, it was really frustrating to me as a rescuer to watch how fast persecutors would get off the triangle, which is when it highlighted to me like there is a personality component to this. Um because rescuers, we, you know, we'll get into this later, but we can get on this triangle and just can't get off. Um, and, but persecutors go, oh, so I do this and this and this and I'm, and I'm off there. Okay. And <laughs> right. Like I said, it's just, it's this mental map because there's a separation between like our mind and our bodies and emotions. It's like we, we can know certain things and we can recognize that we're not doing them and that we should be. And in order to really feel safe, we know that we need to be congruent. And when we become aware that we're not being congruent, that actually feels really unsafe and scary inside of our own heads and inside of our own bodies. So as we talk about getting off of the fear triangle, one of the key components that we'll talk about with each one of these roles is vulnerability and responsibility. So the responsibility is is taking ownership over the fact that Me as a persecutor, I've got these hurts or I've got these wounds that have happened and I'm actually, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of getting hurt. I'm afraid of being close to somebody. I'm afraid of somebody not liking me, not wanting me, not wanting to be with me. That's like the abandonment and belonging issue. And so vulnerability and responsibility is like owning that and being able to admit that to people and to learn how to see that when I open that up to people, they're like, what are you talking about? Of course I love you. Of course I care about you. I don't like those 
protective things that you do. I don't like how you can kind of be controlling or explosive. But man, when when you are at your best and you're vulnerable, it's awesome. Even if you have these fears, so what? Like, I get it. I have some of those myself. Yeah, I think of as an example in our culture, and this is, you know, hey, we talk about being vulnerable here. The shows that have been going on forever, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, you know, I know that there's a contrived nature to those shows, but one of the things that does come up with these contestants that have been on there on multiple shows, they all say the same thing. It's worth the risk, the vulnerability of just opening up and being yourself because they watch themselves back on these shows and they go like, they can see how they're pushing somebody away, which is kind of the, that's the benefit I think of, you know, I guess being on a show with the TV thing. But in some ways, I regularly have clients where they'll say like, I didn't know that it was going to be this cool. Like, I didn't know that this would work. I never would have ever guessed. They're getting feedback from their spouse. Like, there's no way that like this should be happening. And there is this kind of new understanding about the whole situation, which honestly at that point pushes the buttons, so to speak, of their spouse. Yeah, I want to bring this full circle back to the image that you created as we wrap up this episode, which I've really enjoyed kind of exploring this side of it with you. When you talk about this new coolness and new experience that persecutors can have outside of their fear or on the other side of their fear as they open up and experience vulnerability. I want to put that in the context of that image that you painted of this person in the woods. It's like there's a term for that in the clinical world. It's called agoraphobia. (laughs) It's being afraid of leaving your home. Mm -hmm. And even though it's extremely safe, you're at home and you're not experiencing any of the dangers of the world, you're also not really living And at some point, I think persecutors realize that that's what's going on, that they know they've like read all the travel books. They've watched the shows about being at, you know, other parts of the world and how fun and exciting that could be and should be. But they haven't traveled there because they're too afraid. They're too protected. Or maybe they go, you know, in some ways, but they don't really allow themselves to open up. So when you're talking about having these new experiences, I imagine leaving that the safety of that house for the first time. And it is scary. But as you continue walking past the forest and into a new environment, you start seeing people interacting with the environment around you, having these cool experiences that are like, yeah, of course, it's scary. But everyone else is afraid as well. And of course, I'm going to get hurt at times. But there are are certain things that I can do to protect myself. I know what those are. I know how to protect myself generally. But the thing is, I'm going to get hurt. And that's the price of admission for having these awesome experiences. Yeah. And to uh, to use that metaphor again, it would be like the first work that you have to do is you have to create a pathway from your front porch to the barbed wire. You've got to go through and, and figure out what those booby traps are that are in front and that, you know, quite frankly, shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So porch right out there and then you build yourself a gate and uh, you put that gate in. And that doesn't mean that you're letting the person in right off the bat. It's, it's a way for you to open the gate and walk out there with them, get to know them and decide whether or not they're safe enough to you to where you can, you know, take them back to your house on a safe path to the house. Yeah, that's one of the things that I'm really excited as we get into the next episode when we'll talk about the rescuer role from the fear triangle is that for a persecutor, you have to realize that everybody's afraid. You know, when you look at the fear triangle, especially everybody on is extremely afraid. 
But when you get off the fear triangle, you'll realize even people who are healthy and, you know, whatever normal is, you know, somewhat more grounded or functional with their emotions and relationships, they're afraid as well. But they know that that's also something that they just can experience and feel it and be okay, even though it's there. So I'm really excited to see what it's like from the rescuer perspective and to present that to you guys and help you to understand yourselves better from that point of view. I think I just want to leave you with the idea that um, all of this, the contrary, the actual reality is you are loved. You are loved and you deserve to be loved and you need to accept that you are not only lovable, but that you are loved because that's where you've got to come from. You're waiting to find that out, but I can tell you already that it's already true. Thanks for listening to our show. Don't forget to head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts to leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at shrinkthinkpodcast.com forward slash course and sign up for our free email course.